Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man whom, unlike when he had me on an intro, I'm going to let him talk. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I let you talk. I mean... Kind of. Briefly. Kind of. Momentarily. You just run fast <laughs> enough, that's all. <laughs> so that was your interview with Caitlin Murray yeah. earlier, pre- previewing the World Cup final. Was it obvious that I've been in the studio alone all day? <laughs> yeah, I kind of love it when you get literally stir-crazy. Love it. <laughs> not literally, you know what I'm saying. I was, I was stirring a glass, yeah. that's fine. Sure. For purposes of this bit, why not? Well, cabin fever, I guess is the other way of saying yes, it. Yes, I did build a cabin. Studio fever. Also studio fever. Studio <laughs> fever. Um, so yeah, Caitlin Murray, the World Cup final preview, that's in our feed, go back and listen to it. Earlier on, you spoke to Felipe Cardenas about the Copa America, Brazil mm-hmm. versus Peru, um, and how Brazil's going to win, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, mostly. About. But you guys also got into Mexico a little we bit, did. right? We yeah. did, yes, yeah, because Felipe has been uh, uh, traveling with the team in the press conferences, hearing the sort of adversarial relationship that seems to be slightly forming between Tata Martino oh. and some of the Mexican press. <laughs> Not all of it. I think he's gotten uh, nicer treatment than Juan Carlos Cesario, but yeah, yeah, still the Mexican press being the Mexican press. I've only just realized Felipe has a pre-existing relationship with Martino it's in the interview. from him being in... Okay, I need to listen to it. Mm-hmm. I need to listen to it. Uh, so fair. today's show, uh, this show that we're about to... to we're recording the intro for. Yep. Um, it's an interview with Joe Lowry um, of The Athletic. And Joe and I talk... We, one, we talk about Mexico. So I think it'll be a nice compliment to what you and Felipe talked about. Mm-hmm. But we really talk about it from the perspective of how does this affect the United States? Or what are the threats? Uh, what are the opportunities? What can we do? We also get into all kinds of weird angles and discussion points about the U.S. men's national team. And honestly, much as I love talking to you, I sometimes worry that we form our own echo chamber Mm -hmm. and like our opinions may be align and harden. It's really good to get an outside perspective to come in and talk U.S. men's national team. So I assume then you told Joe your ideas and then just pre-recorded him saying, yes, that is correct? Yeah, that's how we did it. I asked him for one recording of yes, that is correct. Perfect. Yeah, it's a really good show. I feel really good about it. And yet my most important (laughs) question for you is, did you go Joe or Joseph Lowry? Oh, we talk about that right at the start. I see this. This is the issue. Yes. I was about in the same way that I always make sure I get Felipe's last name correct, which I think yeah. you, you you pretty much did there. Yeah, uh, I always get nervous about that because I think he he signs it Joseph whenever we're emailing. Yeah. But then I know also. So I was wondering, Joe in was there? he sending us a subtle message yeah. like, "Hey guys, stop calling me Joe. I'm a Joseph." I'm not going to spoil it now. The mm. answer is in like the first thirty seconds of my interview with Joe. All right, he likes both. <laughs> He like, yeah, he prefers Joseph to be Joe Joseph Joe. Okay. So he likes Triple J. Yeah, yeah Triple J. Something like that. I mean, a palindrome <laughs> is all the same. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, you don't know what palindrome is, do you? Again, stir, tra- stir crazy. <laughs> um, okay, so the interview Joe is coming very soon. Also, I just want to mention at the top of the show, one, the Reddit community, the Total Soccer Show Reddit community is thriving. There's lots of great discussions going on there. Visit totalsoccershow.com dot reddit.com mm-hmm. got it right, right. Um, to get involved take a look over a thousand people now are active at Total Social Reddit the other newish thing that I want to promote it's the live show is it's coming close show. what are we we're going to July 5th so July, I was going to do the math but I can't mm-hmm. remember how many days July 13th mm-hmm. a week tomorrow a week on Saturday 4pm at Audi Field we'll be doing our live show with Taylor Daryl Alexis Christian are you having trouble explaining this to people because I am because people keep asking me where it is and then I respond like it's at Audi Field yeah but I, I don't I, I keep going with like it's at Audi Field but we're not queen <laughs> like it's the best way I can explain this <laughs> of like we're not it's not going to be a big stage and the whole field is yeah, going to yeah. be like thumping along to yeah. hello and welcome or anything <laughs> like that but we will rock you I mean obviously yes <laughs> it's, it's in like um, a, one mm-hmm. of the entertainment rooms yeah. right and they have like 
I'm struggling. See, yeah, I yeah. think they have like like uh, like exhibition spaces and convention yeah. spaces and meeting spaces, and it'll be yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah, from my understanding, it's set up for live sort of performances and mm. meetings and things like that. So it will be the ideal. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining it in my head. I've never actually seen it. It's actually just me at one, at one of the concession stands, and everybody's <laughs> going to be kind of uh, positioned around it. We'll have to serve drinks while we do the show. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's us. It's the Cooligans. We really think it's going to be great, right? Well, if you're a DC fan, we'll have... I think the, our part will be great. The game before, the game the night before, yeah. uh, DC versus New England, mm-hmm. we'll have that to talk about. We'll have the US men's national team to talk about. We'll have the US women's national team to talk about. Lots of, like, great discussion topics on stage and also some, like, some funny stuff from me and Taylor and that one good joke that the Cooligans have got. There we go. <laughs> Shots fired. Shade, shade, shade. Shots to you, my guys. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have many good jokes and they're actually very good on the fly. You're right? persisting with the shots to you guys. Yeah. Huh? yeah. All right. Uh-huh. I'm sure the internet will respond. <laughs> <laughs> so tickets are available. If you go to the URL, totalsoccershow.com mm-hmm. slash live. Also, totalsoccershow.com slash live. Yep. If you want to look at it that way. That, that way too. <laughs> that will send you to the ticket buying page. Tickets are $20 plus a $1 inconvenience fee. Inconvenient indeed. Uh, anything else from us or should we turn it over to pre-recorded you and talk to pre-recorded Joe? Yeah, let's turn it over to pre-recorded me and pre-recorded Joe Joseph Joe. There we go. I am joined via the magic of Skype by Joe Lowry. Joe, welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I don't even know how many times you've been on now. Uh, I'm happy. I'm happy to be back. It's great to be on on a semi-regular basis. So thanks for having me, Daryl. I actually have one uh, formal question before we get going. I've noticed I've always called you Joe. And then I noticed also that when you publish for The Athletic or on Twitter or even, you know, your your email name and all that is Joseph. So uh, do you normally go by Joseph? I want to sort of get that cleared up first. I actually do usually go by Joe, so I, oh, okay. I appreciate the fact that you do call me that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a toss-up. It's a total toss-up. Everybody calls me something different, so it, it. it works out. Is it a bit of like authorial branding to be like Joseph Lowry, add that like extra element of uh, serious writer to it? Honestly, a little bit. I'm not going to lie. It's a little <laughs> bit like that. It's. A, I yeah. feel like it's a little bit more professional. Who knows? Yeah. But I like Joe. I like Joe a lot. So, so you're happy with Joe. Okay. I wanted to make sure I wasn't calling you Joe through the whole uh, chat. And you'd be like <laughs> cringing every time. No, that's great. <laughs> so one of the reasons we love having you on is obviously your your tactical mind, your tactical eye. And I think this Gold Cup tournament has been a, a sort of fascinating uh, like source of information or like thing to watch tactically, um, especially the United States, but also Mexico, who we're going to be talking about because it's a USA-Mexico Gold Cup final. Um, first thing I want to ask you, ask you first thing I want to ask you is, um, have you seen progression of the Bearhalter style of play throughout this tournament? And I genuinely don't mean that to be a leading question because I know that I've been very expressive about thinking I've seen it. So I almost want to double check with someone who's not Taylor. Um, Have you seen it as well? I absolutely have seen it. And I don't think this is just a bias, like wanting Berhalter system to work. I think we genuinely have seen some progression throughout this tournament. I mean, you had that first game against Guyana where... The U.S. looked okay, but then maybe you wonder how much you can read into the opposition. And then you go from that point um, to the Jamaica game that we saw a couple of nights ago. And I think it's hard not to see progress in that. I think there are a few different factors that go into that. But on the whole, if you just look at it sort of a bird's eye view, I think we have seen genuine progression both offensively and defensively, which is really encouraging to me. All right, let's let's break that in half then. I mean, first, offensively, because offense sells tickets, right? And that's what they they kind of need. Um, What have you seen in terms of the attack that has improved over the over the Gold Cup? Well, I think it's been interesting to look at 
just the different personnel Berhalter is using within his his formation and his shape. We've seen kind of him abandon the – I mean, not necessarily forever, but for this tournament, we haven't seen the, the whole inverted right back, Nick Lima, Tyler Adams yeah. thing that we we were kind of all fixated on at the beginning because he's chosen to align his team a little bit differently. So we are still seeing a lot of the time we're seeing that same 3-2-2-3 shape, but he's using different players in different spots to get that shape. And so that's been interesting to me to watch – um, Weston McKinney, we saw play right alongside Michael Bradley in that exact same space where that right back was in the early yeah. on, the early like January camp games. I think that's that's so, worth I underlining mean, for people that the the midfield hole that Adams or Lima would fill um, is now filled by Weston McKinney when the right back goes forward. Right, so there's no deviation in the shape. It's just it's just which pieces go where. That's that's. Uh, it seems like Bellhalter has had a change of heart essentially. It does feel like that a little bit, and I think that change of heart is more due to his personnel than anything else. Maybe okay. he's gotten a longer look at Nick Lima and decided, man, I think we get more from Weston McKinney in midfield than we do from Nick Lima in midfield, which, saying that out loud, shouldn't really be that surprising. I think that's pretty yeah. obvious. Um, but I think it's good that he's gotten a chance to work through those things and sort of see maybe when we have a first-choice lineup with everyone healthy, maybe that doesn't mean that Tyler Adams is going to be stuck at right back. Maybe that means he'll be in midfield full time. I mean, we're just seeing so many different um, like versions of this shape that I think yeah. that's that's one of the most valuable thing that this tournament has brought around to us. From my perspective as well, I'd say we are seeing much. We're seeing the best of Weston McKenney when he's allowed to start from deeper, receive the ball deeper, and like play those brilliant forward passes that we've seen. Um, and then even arriving late in the box, like he did for. The, the first goal against Jamaica, I think is way more effective than having him pushed all the way up as a second number 10 and having to receive the ball sort of in traffic with his back to goal. And there isn't space to pull off those beautiful passes. So I think we've almost figured out where Weston McKenney works best over the course of this tournament, which is a, a huge plus, right? If you told me that at the start, I would have been dancing just like Weston McKenney. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I think reading that, I don't know if you read this, Daryl, that Henry Bushnell uh, piece on Weston McKinney. Yes. It's, I mean, Henry has been just killing it on this beat. Um, yes, he has. But he, he talked about sort of those later arriving runs like you were talking about. And he had a quote from Berhalter that basically just said, yeah, McKinney is, is good at picking those times to come, come into the attack late and making those third man runs and things like that. So I totally agree with you. I think McKinney has been, especially in that Jamaica game, was one of the best players. And now that we have a clear idea of his role, I think that's only going to benefit the U.S. moving forward. And you also talked about their defense, right? I know I don't know if you've heard on the show, but Talia and I were really concerned about the, the 4-4-2 defense or 4-2-2-2, however we're calling it, defensive shape not quite working. But you've, you've seen improvements. And I'm really um, excited to hear the improvements that you've seen in terms of the U.S. defending. I've seen so I think especially in the middle of the group stage against against Trinidad and against Panama those last two games I think I think the US actually defended pretty well they pressed decently well I think in terms of it looked like each player had a pretty clear understanding of their assignments and then once you got to that Curacao game it was a little bit it was a little bit different and I think you saw some more uncertainty yeah and frankly I think that might have been Burhalter's or the coaching staff's fault in terms of I think I read a quote that was talking about him him deciding to not press the goalkeeper, which I think yeah. caused some general uncertainty and things like that. But on the whole, looking at it more in a bird's eye view, if we excuse just for a second the maybe the lack of personnel that doesn't quite fit for this pressing scheme, I mean, not to rag on Michael Bradley, but if he steps high, there's always going to be a pocket of space in behind him just because he can't recover quickly enough to get back into that space. Right. So I think the general structure is sound. I think that 4-2-4 shape 
is sound. There are going to be times when opposing teams can overload the midfield and then they'll have to adapt from there. And I think that's probably the next step to making this pressing system. I know not, it's not really a press this, this extended defensive shape into yeah. a more structurally sound it, thing, but it, I think, I think the pieces are there. It is hard to label it, right? Cause it's not a press. We're not, we're not trying to win the ball back high. And I think what they're trying to do, and I'm, I'm interested to see if you agree with this or not, because I think it's a more, it's a thing that's not getting much attention, right? Because we're all focused on the way the US has the ball mm-hmm. and the way they move the ball. Um, it seems to me like they're just trying to block off passing options as opposed to win the ball back. But it, it worries me that I don't even see them like blocking off options in a way that tries to lead opposition teams down blind alleys that we can then you know take advantage of. It feels like they're still in the... Um, like if we think that in, in terms of possession, we're maybe in the second or third stage of what Berhalter's doing in terms of you know learning the basics and then progressing in this and that. Um, I feel like we're still maybe in the first stage of the defensive shape. I think you might be right on that one. You actually said something really interesting there. They're not really trying to win the ball high up the field. It's almost as if they're just trying to force long balls into the back line. So they're not trying to trap in the in the attacking half or anything like that. It just looks to me at least like they're. Like they're trying to force the ball to the side and then and then win a ball in their back line or deep in midfield and then yeah. possess from there. So that's a really interesting distinction, and I wonder if we'll see that sort of change over time. Maybe if you get the more aggressive Tyler Adams in midfield and, and things like that, if the personnel starts to adjust a little bit, maybe you get Paxton Palmacal in there. Maybe at that point we see the U.S. start to actually press and, and try to win balls up, up top. But for now, maybe with the personnel that they have, Berhalter is content to sort of just try to force some long balls and then possess deeper in midfield. I don't know. It's an interesting thought that I don't, I hadn't really run over in my mind. I find it encouraging that at least you can identify there is some sort of plan though, because that was what I was worried about. Like if the plan is to force some long balls, at least then we can say, all right, this is what we're trying to do. So I'm, I'm always in favor of the US having a plan that I can identify. It makes me feel, it makes me sleep easier at night, basically. Um, oh, same here, same here. <laughs> one thing I would say is that maybe the, the way you talked about it, yeah, like we can't really do a press with say, Bradley right it seems like the team is selected in terms of what we do when we have the ball and not selected in terms of best personnel for what we do defensively right so it's very much a an offense first uh team selection process which is the type of thing that maybe could come undone against better opposition and that's the thing right there is is when we see the United States, I mean, we'll get the first taste of it on, on Sunday against Mexico. But when we see the United States take on some more talented opposition, maybe that, that roster selection and that starting lineup uh, choices will have to start to change a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's kind of something that you and I have talked about before with, with Tyler Adams and where he fits best maybe in different types of games. That's going to be something that Berhalter has to start looking at, but we haven't seen that. That just hasn't been necessary so far. For those who don't remember, I think I think I'm one of the person, the people that do remember. Um, (laughs) Your your take was we should use Tyler Adams in a sort of more defensive midfield role when we're against essentially a superior or equal team, right? Like it it makes sense to have Adams in midfield when we're up against tough opposition. Right. Yeah, that is exactly it. Okay. So I think I think sorry. No, go ahead. No, yeah, you go ahead. I, I think Adams' ball-winning ability, I just keep thinking back to the Chile game when Michael Bradley kept getting kind of roasted. Not just Michael Bradley. It was the whole left side of the U.S.'s defensive structure. Kept getting kind of roasted by Arturo Vidal's positioning and things like that. And I think with Adams in there, you kind of eliminate that that risk. So I think having him in midfield to be able to cover ground and control the tempo in games against superior opposition, or I mean, not necessarily superior, but against in games where you're going to concede some possession is always going to be an asset. So one more note or one more question I have just about, say, the recent games in the Jamaica game before we really focus in on Mexico. Um, were you surprised, like I was, by the 
complete change on the right side. No Nick Lima, no Tyler Boyd. We started with Reggie Cannon and Jordan Morris um, instead. So I guess, were you surprised? And do you have any ideas about maybe why that switch happened? I was a little bit surprised. I kind of was only expecting Altador to make that change, uh, Altador to, to be the change in the lineup. Same, same, same. But I, yeah, I remember you guys talking about that on your show. Um, but I think I really enjoyed seeing Cannon in there. I think I liked what I saw from him and Jordan Morris as well in that uh, in that Panama game. So on paper, I actually I was fine with it. I was surprised, like you're saying, but I enjoyed those changes. I think I think Jordan Morris's off ball movement is is really good and maybe better than Tyler Boyd, who's probably better on the ball than Morris. But then there's a little bit of a trade off there. And then Cannon, I think, is a little bit smoother on the ball than Lima is. At least that's that's what I've seen somewhat small sample size with Dallas and with the U.S. But I've always enjoyed what I've seen from Cannon in the attack. Mexico, I think it could look a little bit different against Mexico. Maybe we see Lima back in there to to provide a little bit more defensive stability than Cannon in that 4-4-2 block. But uh, I like the fact that Berhalter made some tweaks. I like the fact that he he messed with his lineup a little bit on top of just putting Josie into the starting lineup. Do you think Tyler Boyd's in trouble with Berhalter? Is there something that he um, is doing or not doing that maybe uh, the coach doesn't like? And that's why, I mean, one, he got subbed out for Morris in the Crisal game, right? And I remember hearing, not long before he was subbed out, there was a lot of shouts of, Tyler, Tyler, do this, do that. And I wondered if there's something he's not doing or supposed to be doing that Berhalter doesn't like. So do you, do you get the same read or do you think it might be just a fitness issue? Like what, what do you think it is? I think it, I think it could be um, a lack of just Boyd might not be completely sure about his positioning at times. I think he, he tends because he is more of a, an offensive minded player. He, he likes to get on the ball and, and see what he can do with the ball at his feet. Yeah. I think maybe that doesn't quite fit right now. Right now it doesn't quite fit as well as Morris's kind of selfless off ball running. If we want Pulisic and we want sort of that left side and now Josie Altidore and Weston McKinney to be the attacking focal points, maybe Morris is a better sort of sidekick than Tyler Boyd is. Tyler Boyd is. I, I don't see. Know. That's, he, that's doesn't wanna, he doesn't want to be the sidekick. He wants to be the superhero, right? Yeah, and I don't want to condemn. I don't want to condemn Tyler Boyd here because I do think he's a good player that could factor into the U.S.'s future. But I think for where the United States Women's National Team is right now, having Jordan Morris in there, obviously this could all change if Boyd starts against Mexico. Yeah, yeah. could be what Berhalter wants to see just right now. Okay, I think I, in this conversation I'm getting a better understanding because I remember Taylor and I were actually praising Boyd for there were a couple of moves where he popped up everywhere and was on the ball and touching the ball. Um, but maybe that's not necessarily what Behelter wants all the time, right? Maybe he wants someone who can take a certain position that, you know, pulls someone out. I, I remember the, uh, I made the argument to Taylor, I'm not sure he fully bought it, but I made the argument to Taylor that the, uh, the, the first goal that the US scores, it's the Bradley diagonal to Reggie Cannon, Reggie Cannon puts it across, mm-hmm. Altador either leaves it or misses it and McKenney comes through, that the, uh, the left centre-back, Sean Francis for Jamaica, had stepped out of the back four because Jordan Morris was like hovering at the top of the box and not involved in the play, but just his his positioning, I, I would argue, pulled a Jamaican centre-back out of position and opened the gap, which is where uh, Cannon played through that channel to, to square the ball. So maybe it's something like subtle like that, that Boyd might have been like, oh, I'm just going to go and get in the box or I'm going to uh, go and demand the ball off Reggie Cannon or something. So yeah, maybe it's this sidekick superhero thing. I think it really could be. Um, it'll be interesting to see who starts in that sort of right wing, right attacking midfield spot against Mexico. So let's talk Mexico. Let's talk Mexico. I think both of us have, I I haven't watched every Mexico game, but I've taken a a good look at little chunks of games. I think I have an understanding of what they're doing. Um, And from a a, a conversation in the imaginary green room, the 
<laughs> the virtual green room. I think you're roughly in the same spot, right? Like you haven't paid massive attention to them, but we've both watched enough to know sort of what they're doing. That, does that sound about right? That sounds about right. So what, what's your take on how Mexico are playing under Tata Martino? Um, and then maybe after we sort of lay out the basics, we can get into what are the threats that Mexico pose? What are the opportunities that the U.S. could exploit? Mexico is playing some some visually pleasing soccer under Tata Martino, and I guess that that shouldn't really surprise anyone from what we <laughs> saw uh, what we saw from Martino at Atlanta United. He's played sort of a, an aggressive four three three in pretty much every game so far. Um, that game against Haiti was was just objectively as a neutral was pretty entertaining to watch. Yeah. Um, and Haiti so played their Mex- part in that, right? By essentially going oh, after absolutely. Mexico and pressing them. Yeah, it was it was a really enjoyable game. one of my favorite Gold Cup games that I've seen so far. Um, in terms of their in terms of Mexico's general scheme, I think in the attack, especially when they when they get to possess the ball a little bit more, a lot of the time they'll split their center backs pretty wide and drop their central defensive midfielder in between them. Yeah, and then that way they can they can Alvarez, sort of have right? both Edson, on each side. Edson Alvarez, Edson Alvarez. number yeah. six, that I think he's, he's the guy to watch most of the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and sorry, I interrupted um, so, you. You were saying they no, spread totally the centre backs wide. Edson Alvarez drops in. Then what happens? And and then they can they can create some some overloads on the wings. So if you can sort of visualize it, if you have the the centre back wide and then the the full back on that same side and the central midfielder and then the winger, that's four players available on each side to yeah. sort of stack the wings. So against a traditional sort of four four two block, just to use that as an example, you oftentimes have like a four v three advantage by by splitting those centre backs wide. So Mexico, a lot of the time, can sort of do those quick rondos around the sides of that defensive block and then just quickly play forward. So that's going to be something that the U.S. really has to watch out for in terms of their defensive stability because Mexico have the skill on the ball. They have the quickness and they have the speed to be able to get them behind quickly after using those overloads. All right. If I've got my personnel correct, then the right-sided fullback is... Uh, Rodriguez uh, with his sort of shaved bald head so he'll be very <laughs> recognized have I got that name right I think I have um, yeah he'll be very recognizable going forward I saw him putting in loads and loads of crosses like almost like he was playing like a winger Reggie, very sort of Reggie Cannon like in terms of mm-hmm. what we do with Reggie Cannon uh, when we get forward and then I think the right of center of the three midfielders is Jonathan Dos Santos who is you know really nice on the ball right so he's going to be great at maintaining possession left of center we've got what uh Jesus Gallardo also very happy to get forward um and like maybe one of the most recognizable team uh, names on the team Andres Guardado who's always a player you've got to watch out for L- look out for those long shots Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Gordado is going to be tough for the U.S. to do within midfield. But, I mean, that's that's kind of always the case. So that's not yeah. really anything new. So we we know about him, right? I, I think a sort of a, a new threat um, is because it's not Chicharito as a striker, Raul Jimenez has really emerged as Mexico's number one striker for the Gold Cup, right? At least partly because Chicharito's not there. Um, but um, I, I obviously I'm familiar with him from watching him play for Wolves. Um, I think he's kind of dangerous in terms of he's fast and he's mobile and he's lively and he's willing to press you and come after you and he's very quick on the on the sort of counter attack and not bad in the air as well when crosses are coming in so i'd make the argument i think it's an easy argument to make this is the best striker we've faced in the gold cup right he is not darren mattox um he is not arias who's playing for curacao this is a guy who will pose danger all the time and i think that's going to be for me that's a huge test for the u.s center backs uh, whomever they may be that's a big storyline for me is how the U.S. are going to deal with Raul Jimenez. Because, I mean, the last time that we saw the national team, the U.S. national team play a quality striker was in that, that Venezuela friendly before the Gold Cup. Yeah. Um, and, and Solomon Rondon scored a brace in that game in, in that 3-0 loss. So 
I think just seeing how that back three, how Aaron Long and whoever plays at the right center back spot and then Tim Ream can deal with his movement and with his quality on the ball and with his physicality is going to be a really interesting thing to watch in this game. So what would you like to see from the US in terms of defensive setup? Do you think the sort of, the f- I call it like the four four two defensive mid block, I guess, with the wingers then willing to push high onto the onto the fullbacks and like you said we try to force them long will that work against Mexico or do we need to to tweak things up a bit it's hard for me to imagine the U.S. sort of starting out in their extended defensive shape like we've seen in a lot of this group stage yeah um so I, th- I think just just because of Mexico's quality and their their speed and their play on the ball I think if you kind of extend your defensive shape and allow them to play into more space in midfield, that's that might be a recipe for disaster. And when, when so you say extended we, defensive shape, you mean essentially the two, the front two, which we assume might be like say Pulisic and Altador, that they're mm-hmm. um, all they're over the they're way over the halfway line, and there's a bit of space between them and the midfield, and there's a bit of space between the midfield and the defense. Am I am I correct? Yeah, that's what you mean by that. Yeah, it's 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 kind of my alternative term for for the press because it's not really a press. So yeah. it's just kind of like they've moved the block higher up the field. Yeah. and that that can create gaps in midfield and gaps behind the back line yeah so why um, stretch so yourself out right to... i guess is the question and the exactly is, exactly i think that's that's my opinion at least burhalter might have something different in mind and he might he might believe in his his high defensive shape and try to go for that instead but i think we'll we're more likely to see sort of a more reserved 4-4-2 or um, burhalter loves to call it the 4-2-4 defensive block or 4-2-2-2 that's what he likes to call it it's good branding Good branding. It I think is, he I wants guess. it to not I, sound boring. But I've seen like in maybe the Maybe Colum- he's trying to be RB Leipzig. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen in the Columbus days that it really was sometimes just a tight, compact four four two that sat reasonably deep, right? Like the front two would be behind the halfway line. So I wouldn't be surprised if even if we try to go for the extended defensive shape, that Mexico managed to at least get the ball wide to a fullback and then start and then build through midfield from there. Um mm-hmm. I then I see us falling back into the four four two anyway, right? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think that's probably what we're going to see. What about the... So what I've seen is um, if, they, if they can't hit the fullbacks, they often go to Edson Alvarez, right? Number six will be the central, central midfielder. Do you see a situation where maybe we put someone on him? Because I know like for parts of the Curacao game, we put Michael Bradley on... Um, I've forgotten his first name, uh, but the other Martina, the non-captain Martina. It's possible, I think... I, I think it's we could see one of the two central midfielders. I think it'll probably either be McKenney or Bradley, like you were saying, step to him a little bit. But I do have some concerns about Edson Alvarez dropping deep and that, that automatically creating a gap in midfield when one of the two central midfielders for the U.S. steps to him. Yeah. So if they can figure out a way to do that while still blocking off uh, probably Gordado and Dos Santos in central midfield – then I think that that could be a really viable defensive strategy. But if they're just kind of stepping and then there's a massive gap in midfield, that's going to be a problem. So yeah, and I that's think, a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah, and I think Behalter identified that as a problem after the first half against Curacao, right? And then he told Bradley, stop doing that. Go like mm-hmm. sit next to Weston McKenney. So we've got a solid two. Which again, against a three-man midfield, yeah, you don't want one of them pulled out, right? Because Guardado or Dos Santos is probably free unless you're going to pull someone in from somewhere else. Um, and I think what we did in the second half, which I, I don't think worked, but might be a thing that they maybe doesn't work as a first draft, but the second draft might work if they've been uh, <laughs> practicing it, is they kind of had Pulisic and, I guess it was Zardes, right, in that game, uh, almost trying like each block off half of the side, so they were either side of the defensive midfielder, Martina, to try and block those passes coming in. And in the end, it didn't work, so they got shuffled around and Martina got opened anyway. But maybe there's a maybe there's a version of this where they work on it and get it right. 
I totally, I totally agree. I think the, you know, we've talked about how the possession and the attacking scheme is kind of what everybody's been focusing on. I think it could be a little bit flipped in this game against Mexico. Maybe it's, we'll get a better feel for how their defensive work is developing and maybe we'll see Mexico have a little bit more of the ball, which will give us plenty of opportunities to to examine and to analyze the U.S.'s defensive structure. It's kind of weird, right, as well. This is two teams that have taken having the majority of possession for granted in every game so far. <laughs> I think the U.S. is more even than they expected against Curacao. Um, but they can't both have 60% possession, right? So one of them is going to be on the back foot and their defensive scheme will be... Uh, will be very, very important. I, I would argue that we don't know which one yet because we haven't seen how the game unfolds. That's very true. It's going to be, it'll be, I'm interested to watch and see sort of how the game flows and which team dominates the ball yeah. or if or if it's more of a back and forth situation, maybe both teams get spells of possession. Yeah, that would be interesting too. Okay, before we get to the, the Twitter questions of which we have many, we'll do, we'll, we'll do kind of quick fire so that um, we're, so I don't have you on Skype all day. Um, I mean, Skype would complain, right? They'd say too, they take up too much bandwidth. All this <laughs> They'd probably talk. kick us off at yeah. that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I want to talk about US lineup. We've talked about maybe the sort of shape we would like to see. Um, the big questions for me are Altador or Zardes? And I think the answer is, without even asking you, I know the answer is Altador, right? Um, I yeah. guess, would you mind briefly outlining the reasons why it should be Altador? Um, well, I'm actually going to have a piece out for The Athletic on, on this, but just to put it, briefly uh altador is better <laughs> is that the is that the text of your article did i just did wrote Quraishi that get back to you and say again. please expand uh yeah <laughs> I, we, we're working through some edits right now apparently it's a pretty extensive process but <laughs> what is he better at um so altador i think his movement zardes's movement is is decent altador's movement is really good and then to couple to go along with that he has the skill on the ball he has strength which is something that you know the u.s really lacks right now is just a general athletic ability and physicality yeah so altador brings that he brings he brings his skill on the ball and then he also brings creativity i think in that venezuela game he was probably when he came in in the second half for zardes he was probably the most creative player on the entire field yeah so i think between all of those things Altador is a, a really good fit at striker for the u.s i think i think this was bobby warshaw made this point or maybe it was, Char- no, it was charlie davis and bobby warshaw on um extra time that it was in their brown liquor special where they stayed up late <laughs> after the jamaica game um both of them made the point that even though everybody wants Altador to be a target striker including sunderland when they had him he seems most comfortable when he can come deep and connect play and have someone else like running beyond him right and charlie davis was making the point that when the u.s was really firing with davis and altador up front in 2009 it was because because davis just loved to go deep get in behind and altador could sorry you know go far get in behind and altador Mm -hmm. could come deep receive the ball create and then he knew that he had someone to release um ahead of him and i think in the bear system it kind of works because boyd or morris or pulisic or somebody it's designed for Altador to come deep and someone to go and get in behind him, right? So it's almost the perfect fit for Josie Altador. And I think the fitter he gets, the sharper he gets, the better he looks. And it's worth being excited about. I'm completely with you. I yeah. think I think Josie Altador is a great fit in the system and it's going to be fun to see how he sort of develops in that role over time. Would you agree? Like, I don't think this is deliberate. I think this is accidental. But it's almost the greatest PR move of all time to hold <laughs> Josie Altador out for so long let Zardes have some heavy touches and some missed shots. And almost like Altador's gone from being booed 
after October 2017 and everyone's saying he should retire. He's, his time with the national team is done when he wasn't even 30 years old and he's definitely our best striker. To now we're all clamoring for Josie Altador. It's like, it's like they hired the best PR firm of all time and advised Berhalter how to make Altador popular with um, maybe some more fickle US fans again. It's, it's a genius move. I think US soccer has finally figured out how to relate to the public. It's perfect. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're, I feel like they're so Machiavellian, that would be the way they would try to do it. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I don't actually think that's what's happened, though. It's just about Josie's hamstrings, right? Which we have. I At this point, I credit Berhalter with protecting Josie's hamstrings like the precious, precious gold that they are. And even that early sub in that Jamaica game, getting him off in like the, the 55th minute or yeah. 60th minute or whatever it was, I think that was a good move as well. So hopefully we can see a fully fit uh, Josie Altador against Mexico who's ready to go the whole game. And then here's the um, the, the other big lineup questions. Um, Lima or Cannon, Boyd or Morris, Miazga or Zimmerman? Because those are the changes that we've seen recently, right? So as much as I do enjoy watching Reggie Cannon, I think Nick Lima back there it could be the right way to go just defensively. Yeah, um, I agree. I think he stands I, people I think, up in a much better way than Reggie Cannon often goes to ground, right? Yeah, Lima is just more physically stout. I think if you just look at his build, he's a little bit stronger. And, yeah. and Cannon could eventually grow into that. But just for, for this one game, I think Lima is definitely the better option. Yep. Um, it's it's Rodolfo that, Pizarro probably on the left, right? And he is, right. from what I saw, I don't know much about him, but he seems um, busy. He seems lively. He seems all over the place. Like he'll be kind of tough to track, I think. Yeah, and that means that right back is going to have to be busy as well. So I think I really do believe that Lima could, I don't know how well he'll be able to do the job, but I think he's probably the best option. Okay. Then the other um, one then, is Boyd or Morris. This is the big yeah, question. Yeah, right? I, think, I think I've sort of grown to appreciate Jordan Morris more over the last couple of games of this tournament. So I would probably stick with, with what worked alongside Josie Altador uh, against Jamaica and stick with Morris at that sort of, it ends up being a right attacking midfield spot how about uh, this for possession. How about this for a wrinkle? Um, if Berhalter is feeling a bit more cautious and he looks at the way, say, Gallardo, the left back, gets so far forward and then on the other side, Rodriguez gets so far forward, it's going to be a more... It's probably going to be a defensive role for those wingers uh, in that they're going to have to track back a lot, right? Um, because, mm. like, say, say if it's Lima or Cannon, if they're occupied with uh, Rodolfo Pizarro, I'm pretty sure I've got his name right, it's Pizarro, right? Um, if they're occupied yeah. with him and his movement, it leaves space for the fullback to get forward. The only person who can track that fullback is uh, wide midfielders in the 4-4-2, right? So, um, Paul Ariola, I would have full faith in doing that on one side. I've seen him track mm-hmm. back plenty, and I've, you know, he he's not, not a bad defender. He's played fullback for DC, right? Um, right? On the other side, what if, this only just come to me. What if Berhalter thinks, hey, I played Christian Roldan there to see out the game against Jamaica. He maybe does a better defensive job than Boyd or Morris. I really don't trust Morris in terms of his spatial awareness of players running behind him. What mm. if it's, I'm saying, what if it's Christian Roldan in a defensive move to start the game? That is, okay, that is genius, Daryl. I think that is entirely possible. You're right, we did see Roldan in that right sort of right midfield role that transitions a little bit more inside in the attack. And I think if you're going to have to play someone who who has that defensive awareness, Roldan could be that guy. Obviously, he has limitations in possession, but then again, so does Jordan Morris. So yeah. it would okay. It would definitely not surprise me if if that's what we saw. Wow, that is that's good stuff, Daryl. All right, I've put that out in the world. We'll see if see if Berhalter picks it up, and everyone will be mad at me if that happens as well because that would not be an exciting looking lineup, right? <laughs> it wouldn't, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> um, okay, how about this? Is the tough one for me. Miazga or Zimmerman? I feel like I can barely choose between them because their games seem fairly similar, right? I They seem similar to me as well. I think maybe you go with Miazga just for his a little bit more experience at the international level with the yeah. US. But 
I mean, both players can can break lines with their passing. Neither one is is lightning fast, but they're both decently, you know, fast enough over long long stretches. Yeah, it almost feels like flipping a coin a little bit. So maybe you do go with experience. You think that's what Bellhelter does, like Harvey Dent? <laughs> I hope not. Or Antoine Chigurh. It's perfect. It's perfect. Just flip a coin. Walker Zimmerman's head is on one side. Matt Miazga's is on the other. It's perfect. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll find out when the lineup comes out. I just realized earlier that I said we'll talk about um, threats from Mexico and then potential opportunities for the US. And then uh, I went all in on the threats from Mexico. Um, what do you see as opportunities that the US can exploit in terms of things that Mexico do? So I think we kind of talked a little bit about how Mexico pushed their fullbacks high up the field. Yeah. Um, and then on on that in that situation, I think we could really see Christian Pulisic drift wide and get the ball almost in a transition-like moment uh, yeah. and sort of just run, run into that open space and, and maybe even run into that that center back on his side. Um, so if we see Paul Ariola drift inside and we see Pulisic make that run to the wing, we could sort of look for the U.S. to capitalize in that open space, uh, kind of cl- close to when they get the ball back from Mexico's possession. So that's that's one thing I think that I'll be looking for. I think I heard um, your um, athletic uh, colleague, um, Felipe Cardenas, um, mm-hmm. on talking to Taylor on the Total Sox show about Mexico, I think after the Haiti game, saying that often or more often than most teams would, Mexico will leave just the two center backs back. Right, like if um, if Alvarez gets Edson Alvarez goes forward into the midfield, gets involved mm-hmm. in the attack, and the fullbacks go high, then you end up with just two defenders, and they're good defenders, right? It's probably like Hector Moreno, Diego Reyes. Um, there's uh, someone else who's been playing as well, Araujo, maybe. Like these are very Carlos Salcedo. Carlos Salcedo, yeah, and they've got Montes on the bench as well, right? So they've got they've got all kinds of high quality defenders, but any high quality defender left sort of with just the two of them at the back, that's a lot of space to cover, right? So that is the potential opportunity as well, I think. I t- I'm totally with you. I think watching how the United States transitions is going to be key in this game, looking at how they go from defense to attack quickly and, and what runners they send into which spaces to try to overwhelm those center backs will be key. All right, so everybody, please keep an eye on that. I'm suddenly getting more and more excited for this game, the deeper into detail we, we get about it. Um, I went to Twitter, Joe, and I asked for questions and... People want to ask you a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions came in. Um, so I can't ask you all of them because we really would be here all day. I've selected a few. Um, but before we get to those, one interesting thing I noticed is literally the first five, maybe six questions were not about the USA-Mexico Gold Cup final. They were about what happens next. Like, wh- like when does, how does Tyler Adams get integrated? Where does Yedlin fit? When does Pomacal play? Things like that. And I... We might get to those if we have time later to, later at the end of this show. But I wanted to sort of ask you, why did you think that is? Why, why do you think if we've got a game against Mexico in two or three days' time, and I'm excited about that, why are people still looking beyond the Gold Cup and to the future? Is there something going on that is making that happen? I think a lot of people just sort of tend to overlook the Gold Cup in terms of its value as an international tournament because there's no confederations cup you know it's maybe harder to see what the value is for the u.s yeah. in winning like I mean, what's the benefit and i think it's dangerous to do that because we we overlook these these tournament games that brawl is going to be looking at and is going to be examining and trying to build his roster for the future off of that so that's that's one thing and i think the other thing is that maybe we're all still riding the high of that U20 World Cup a little bit. We're, we're tantalized yeah. by the talent on that roster, and we, we're kind of impatient, and we want to see Serginho Dest, we want to see Paxton Palmacal and Ledesma and Chris Richards in this in this team sooner rather than later. So it can be easy to sort of just you know overlook the uh, 
the Paul Ariolas and the the Reggie Cannons and, and Nick Limas in favor of those more exciting youngsters. Yeah. And maybe that's part of why we're almost just kind of rushing through this game and trying to look to the future. So maybe it's not a bad problem to have then, right? Maybe it just it just reflects the optimism that people have for the future players of the US men's national team, which I don't think is misplaced, right? And I'm not just talking about the U twenty performance, I'm just talking about the the quality of player coming through. Like I'm as excited about Paxton Pomacal as anyone. But I'm not really. I'm, I think I'm more just putting putting it off to the future because we have the Gold Cup to talk about. And that's the thing. I think if we can just hold off on those, not that it's necessarily bad to talk about them, but if we can just sort of focus on what's what's really coming up in a couple of days now, and then and then we can get back to all those fun hypotheticals for the future. Yeah. Um, because there is a final coming up, and the players the players care, and the coaches care, and I think as a fan base, uh, you know, we should be we should be into it as well. I think it also goes back to the thing that we started the show talking about: the sort of progression of the Bearhalter system or Greggy Ball as we call it, like we have seen it like look better and better and better. I would love for Pomacal and Adams and Yedlin and Weyer and all those guys to be integrated into this team that's fully functional, right? Like once the, the whole thing is up and running, you're adding like exciting new parts to a machine that's already working and maybe improves it. And I think it's, you can get excited about like the, the promise of having 11 exciting looking names on the field, but it's more exciting to have a, a team system that works and then you can add those players to that. So to me, that's the, the prize of the Gold Cup is that we end it with a team system that works. 100%. Yeah, you can't just look to the future without having sort of these sometimes difficult but sometimes successful building blocks along the way that gets you there. So I think if we overlook those building blocks, it's going to be it's going to be less enjoyable, honestly, for everyone once we do get that machine running a little bit and see this young talent coming through. All right, then let's switch gears and ask these Twitter questions then, right? I know um, I sent them to you just to give you a uh, fair warning, but I should also warn you, I'm going to ask them kind of out of order. Uh, so That's totally fine. We're going to start with Del Schaefer. Del Schaefer asks, Will this USA-Mexico game still be hotly contested slash feisty slash fun to watch despite the different cast of characters? Mexico have kind of a half B team, right? And not seeming to be as important a cup, maybe because of the Confederations Cup thing that you mentioned. So do we we still expect this to be the USA-Mexico feisty fun rivalry? I think when we saw um, that game under Dave Sarikin, that friendly with the U.S. versus Mexico, and just how much energy there was on both sides of the field. I mean, in that game, I think we had the Miazga and Diego Linus yes, thing. Yes, yes, And then we also had the Tyler Adams goal. Yeah. Um, I think if we can get energy in that game in a friendly under an interim head coach, there absolutely will be energy <laughs> and rivalry in this game in a, in, a, in a meaningful tournament, I think, with yeah. two new coaches at the start of a new regime. So I'm expecting to see a lot of energy, maybe some... I don't know. I don't want to wish fights on the game, but there, there's going to be energy back and forth. That's for sure. And it's it's the beginning of a new era in the rivalry, right? Because we both have new coaches with like oddly similar styles in some ways. Um, and it's the fir- I just realized this, it's the first Gold Cup since 2011 where the US has played Mexico. Every other Gold Cup since, and remember it happens every two years, one of the teams has messed up. And we've played Panama in the final and we've lost to Jamaica in the semifinal. And so it's been eight years since we've played USA-Mexico in the Gold Cup final. The only one I can think of in between was the, that weird CONCACAF Cup thing that we did. Um, so it, to me, it's fun to see it back on. And I think that will, that will add some feistiness to it as well. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. All right. Um, okay. Let's go to Marcus Vaccaro, maybe Vaccaro. Marcus Vaccaro's question, how do past Berhalter and Martino matchups affect Sunday? So obviously Berhalter coaching Columbus, Martino coaching Atlanta. They would have faced each other in what, 2017 and 2018? Because Martino was there 
for a couple of years. Is there anything, because I know you're, you're sort of an MLS tactics expert as well, right? That's a lot of what you write for The Athletic. Um, is there anything from those past matchups between Berhalter and Martino that you've seen that we can take and take into Sunday's game? So you're right. They, they did play each other a few times in 2017 and 2018. Uh, Berhalter and Martino played each other five times over those two those two years so atlanta won all four regular season matchups over those two years um so so that's not a great start right in terms of the narratives for this game but then then you look a little bit deeper and in that playoff matchup i don't know if you remember this um the playoff matchup in 2017 where adam john had the winning penalty kick um shout out to phoenix rising's current striker (laughs) um uh, adam john had that winning penalty kick and atlanta won in extra time so in that game, Columbus conceded possession um, pretty heavily. I think they ended with like 40 or 43 percent possession, something like that. So that alone could sort of be indicative of the styles that we might see in this game. If Berhalter has had some slight success with a little bit of a more reactive approach in the past against Martino, maybe we could see that again. I don't know. It's it's hard to sort of translate club results to the international level just because both teams personnel are so different now than they were then yeah but maybe that's yeah, a little be, bit of a clue that we can look at because Berhalter would have looked at that and looked at that Atlanta team at the time and thought I don't have the talent I don't quite have the like man-for-man talent to match up against Atlanta right so I've got to win the tactical battle he might be feeling more confident about this U.S. team against this Mexico team than he was about exactly. Columbus versus Atlanta in 2017 yeah, it's totally fair. So, so maybe he'll maybe he'll concede possession, or maybe he'll say, "I have more talent now than I ever have, and let's go for it." Yeah. All right, let's go with a uh, one positive question and one negative question. Aaron Cook <laughs> asked, um, "To what should we attribute the U.S. men's national team's marked improvement in the Jamaica game?" Thanks and blessings. So, thanks and blessings to both of us. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks, what, Aaron. What? Why did the U.S. look so improved against Jamaica? So, I think we've touched on this a little bit already. Um, but one of the biggest things, I think, is just another game in the system. And it's it's kind of a general thing that maybe is vague and we're like, what does that actually mean? But I think getting these players another game on the field together, another 90 minutes with the with the kind of first choice lineup is really big. We get they get more chances to to execute the repetitions that they've worked on in training. Yep. They get a better look at how to adapt over you know a game by game against a different opposition. So that's that's one thing. And then I think the other thing, and we, we've already talked about this a little bit, is Josie out the door. I think the difference between his play and Josie Zardes' play up top, like you you can't you can't overstate it. So I think between out the door and getting another 90 minutes in a meaningful game, those are both huge. All right, that's good. Uh, Diploticus asks, what position do you think is the one that the team, I assume the U.S. men's national team, is most lacking in so essentially what's our weak spot Ooh, i can think of there are three there are three positions i think that that can be upgraded a little bit first uh you got that left center back left back hybrid yeah. tim reem tim reem had a good game against jamaica so i don't want to rag on him too much but um he's just not a natural fit for an outside defender you need someone at least ideally who's a little bit more mobile who can deal with you know an aggressive fullback maybe like we'll see against mexico ideally you have paul Ariola back there to try to negate some of those issues but i think between reams you know one dimensionality a little bit and then just the lack of depth behind him that's a big thing Ooh, before, um, you, before you give the other two sorry we should yeah, go maybe ahead. go to jordan's question why hasn't any team really exploited tim reams lack of pace oh jordan i i so don't know the answer to that it's, <laughs> it's kind of mind-boggling to me a little bit because Especially when I saw, you know, Jamaica start Leon Bailey on the opposite side from Tim Ream. Yeah. I mean, eventually he switched over to Ream's side and did cause some danger. But 
I just don't understand. I don't understand why you wouldn't run at a, a really non-mobile center back who's kind of stuck out wide. I just don't I don't understand it, Jordan. I really don't. Is he is it maybe Which is good, the, I guess, for the US. Does the shape give him protection or maybe is Tim Ream's positioning better than we give him credit for? Like maybe he's uh covering for his lack of pace uh with some smart positioning. Or maybe it's Aaron Long like next to him is Aaron Long who really is quick. So maybe Tim Ream's lack of pace um if it gets exploited there's a second like a, a, a second wave of defense in Aaron Long's pace. Aaron Long is, is key. He had some really big challenges, like last-minute challenges against Jamaica. And then I think you're right. The shape is designed to sort of give Reem cover. He has a number of bodies close by him. But if I'm an opposing coach kind of game planning for how to beat the U.S., I yeah. still, I'm still going to try my luck, basically. So I think Berhalter's done a good job of, of sort of covering Reem's deficiencies, but I'm still going to roll the dice and try to run at Reem a little bit with my best attacker, I think. Oh, so Mexico, I don't know who will start, but I know Antuna has been starting quite a lot on the right. And from what I remember, he is rapid. Yeah, and Tuna could cause some serious difficulties for Reem if he starts on that that uh, right wing. So that's going to be definitely one thing on my list of things to watch for this this final on Sunday is how how Mexico attacked the U.S. and if there is somewhat of a focus on Reem's positioning. All right. Fingers crossed that Tim Reem and his beard will not be in too much trouble. <laughs> um, so we are pivoted away, but uh, Diplotticus's question about uh, the positions that the U.S. is lacking in. So you pinpointed Reem. You said you had two more. Yeah. So my other spots outside of that left center back, kind of left back spot, are, are central midfield. Not, again, not to pick on Michael Bradley. It's actually more to pick on the lack of depth that there is at that spot. I mean, when you're when you're kind of first choice reserve central midfielders are are Will Trapp and Christian Waldan. Nothing against those guys. I think they're good professionals, but I'm not sure they're they're good enough for the international level with yeah. the United States. So just to look at the lack of depth, it'll look a little bit better once Tyler Adams gets back from injury. But but that's kind of a weak point, at least in my opinion, right now. And then the very last spot is is less of a position and more of a role in Berhalter's system. It's that sort of far outside right-sided attacker so we've seen in the past we've seen nick lima play there and we've seen reggie cannon play there but of all the guys we've seen out there i think tyler boyd probably has the most creativity yeah but i think there's just a real lack of of meaningfully creative and in like ingenuitive sort of attackers over there um so i think if we could see a little bit more stability and creativity from that right wing spot i think that would benefit the us as well do you think it's about just getting the balance of boyd understanding the spacing and then once he does bear how to trust him more and um, understanding the defending and once he does bear how to trust him more and then once he's sort of embedded and understands the system then he can start expressing himself with some you know dribbles and his like acceleration and his shots from distance i think that absolutely could be part of it i'm not i'm not quite sure just because I haven't seen a ton of Boyd still, even with these couple of U.S. games, if he's better in a more interior role or if he could be that that far outside sort of attacker. Yeah. But that's one thing that I'll be, just as this Berhalter tenure continues, as we gather gather more information, looking to see where Boyd fits best, if he could be the answer to that that far wide attacking role on that side. That's going to be something I'll be watching for over time. I can see me, assuming he signs for Besiktas, which seems like it's quite possible, I can see me watching... More Turkish Super League than I expected next season. <laughs> oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> Just Absolutely. to get an idea. We also, um, you know, we do the scouting network, right? Where we look at young players. Right. Um, we made a special exception and we've added Tyler Boyd to the scouting network, even though he's 24. And we've assigned him uh, to a scout to keep an eye on because he's kind of of special interest to US men's national team fans, right? So we, I really want to like, keep tabs on Tyler Boyd and see what he's doing because I want more information, essentially. That's great. Yeah, I'll be listening for those updates for sure. 
Randy Morgan asks, um, what matchup on Sunday is most concerning for the US? In other words, which Mexican player will give the US the most trouble? Is it Jimenez, Guardado, or someone else? I kind of think we've touched on the the big points that I wanted to yeah. to sort of get at at this question. I think Jimenez's movement up top is going to be really difficult for the U.S. to deal with. Gordado in midfield is is got the quality and is just going to cause the United States midfield or could cause the United States midfield a lot of trouble. And then also we talked about Edson Alvarez a little bit. I think watching how the United States tries to counter his movement, whether he's dropping deep behind between the center backs or even making some late late arriving runs into the attack. Those are all three going to be players that that could cause the U.S. some serious problems. Uh, 0.03 stacks, which I think is a reference to some sort of IKEA chair. Um, do you think the U.S. men's national team's defensive 4-4-2 will stymie Eltree's attack while in a low block? Or will the U.S. have to press and get the ball to win the game? I know we've kind of touched on this already, but I like this idea of do we go low or do we press? I like uh, 0.03 stacks use of the word stymie because I'm not necessarily <laughs> convinced that the U.S. will be able to stymie uh, Mexico's attack in whatever system they're in. But I like the optimism. Um, I think we're going to see the U.S. start low and step high as opposed to starting high and dropping low, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Like wh- um, when will we step high then? If we work them backwards, maybe we'll... I think, I think we'll step high on maybe a back pass, either from a fullback to a center right. back or, or just you know those generic sort of pressing cues that a lot of teams use yeah. to take advantage of, of space as an opposing attacking team sort of drops back. So I think that's, that's what I'm envisioning for this game. Berhalter could have something completely different in mind, but that's kind of my viewpoint right now maybe that columbus atlanta playoff game we talked about might be the key to to this and it is the defensive 4-4-2 right um here's here's my my question about this though is quick hypothetical what if greg berhalter just wakes up feeling brave and says all right guys we're rolling the dice we're going for an all-out press when mexico tried to play the ball out of the back if the u.s did that with current personnel do we get destroyed (laughs) they pass through us or do we win the ball high and then christian pulisic's in on goal I mean, I don't think the United States would get totally destroyed. I think they'd give up more space than Berhalter probably would be comfortable with. But, I mean, I think the United States could do a semi-decent job of of sort of pressing and and matching up man for man and just kind of rolling the dice and seeing what, what happens in that press. So if Berhalter's feeling brave, if he wakes up uh, in an interesting mood and just wants to go for it, <laughs> then, I mean, it's totally possible. Too much coffee. He has like five Too much coffee. That's, the, that's always the answer. <laughs> if he has too much, too much coffee, Caffeine. I think we could see the U.S. just really put the pedal to the metal and just go for it. Um, what What's probably more likely is that they do a mix of both systems, just depending on where the game is and, and what the scoreline yeah. is at different times. But I, it's fun some moderation, to sort of right? More like one espresso <laughs> exactly. and some sparkling water. Exactly. A little bit of coffee, Greg, but yeah. but not too much. Don't <laughs> don't go crazy. Um, so yeah, the defensive structure for the U.S. is going to be a big storyline. I think at least. Right, we've got one more question about the the uh, the defending. It's from Doug Bernstein. Um, he said he asks, why does the defensive press struggle? Are the wingers not pressed high enough? Are McKenney and Bradley giving too much space in the middle? Are the centre backs too deep? It just rarely looks coordinated, and it's hard to see where the breakdown is. So I know we've already talked about this at length, but I kind of like keep approaching it from these different angles to see what else we can tease out. Yeah, so just kind of going through Doug's questions one by one, the first thing he asks is, are the wingers not pressed high enough? And so far, at least from what I've observed, the wingers are often responsible for the opposing team's fullbacks. Yeah. So in my in my opinion, they don't need to be like super tight to those guys, but they need to be close enough to close down the ball. 
um, if they if they do receive the ball. So it's it's less about denying them passes and more about limiting their time on the ball once they get it. Would, Would you, you agree with that, Daryl? I do, but I also I worry that they start from too far away, and I'd rather they split the difference and get a little closer because I keep remembering seeing. Paul Areola sprint like 20 yards when the ball goes to the fullback. So it's almost like he waits until the fullback receives the ball and then goes tearing in. And I feel like whenever you're charging at someone, you're kind of at risk of making a defensive mistake. So I'd almost like to see him start a little higher just so he's like, it's less tempting to pass or the the fullback is less open because Areola is at least lurking and ready as opposed to running at him once he receives the ball. That's a good observation because in this in this United States sort of high defensive high defensive shape, oftentimes the weak side winger um, is responsible kind of for for covering multiple different players at the same time. So yeah, it's tough. Right? Oftentimes it's a tough we, job. it is it is a tough job, and so I think it's fair to nitpick that. But at the same time, I just want to sort of. I guess defend Berhalter's positioning a little bit because yeah. if you're Paul Ariola and the ball's on the other side of the field, I guess theoretically he should be quick enough to close down that fullback with a long switch. So so maybe he should just be able to adjust his positioning as needed. Um, but that'll be something that's really interesting to watch because I don't I don't know what the right answer is. I don't yeah. know if Ariola should start closer to the fullback and give up space in midfield or if the focus should be on protecting the midfield and then stepping high to the fullbacks as needed. And it may so be, I just, it, it I may be, it may be that I'm looking at this two one dimensionally and when Ariola is like 15 yards away from the fullback, he may be covering something behind him or at least blocking the angle to someone behind him. So I may not be looking at the, the full chessboard here, right? I might be just focused too much on, on like a one v a one v one matchup. Um, maybe the answer is that Mexico send their fullback so high that we can almost keep the four four two shape, and the fullback will just be next to Ariola anyway, because it'll be so Rodriguez will be so far up the field anyway. It would be really considerate of Mexico to do that. I think that would be really nice of them. If they could just make it a little bit easier for the United States, that would be perfect. <laughs> so the second part of the question was: Are McKenney and Bradley giving too much space? Giving too much space in the middle. I think a lot of times the answer has been has been yes a little bit just because of kind of who McKenney and Bradley are. Um, McKenney sometimes gives up too much space in midfield because he's he's looking to press and he's actually looking to go for it, mm-hmm. um, which which could have its benefits in the long run. And that's just the kind of player he is. I think that's his personality. And then Bradley, I think, gives up space in midfield sometimes just because of his physical limitations. He doesn't right. have the speed to track back. So. That's a danger when the U.S.'s midfield, when the double pivot, one of them pushes forward, the other one can be isolated. So that is a tricky spot for the U.S., and I'm not sure how Berhalter is going to approach fixing that, um, maybe giving the, the front two a little bit more responsibility for marking off that central defensive midfielder would be a good start. What do you think of the idea of, instead of the 4-4-2 defensive shape, we, and I know that, that, that Berhalter does that because he likes having Pulisic high up the field for ready when we counter, he's already in position to go, right? But... What if it just became more like, because it, essentially because Mexico have three central midfielders, what if we did a 4-5-1 in defense and Pulisic could drop like almost alongside McKenney and Bradley for the defensive phase? Like I know he's not naturally defensive, but just to have the extra body in there so that we have a shape that maybe matches Mexico's three central midfielders anyway. That's kind of an interesting idea because then you would sort of go man for man in that midfield. Maybe yeah. you, you put Pulisic in the in the actual middle of that and he's yeah. just tasked with marking Edson Alvarez yeah, that could wherever he goes. I think that's that could be a good idea because Alvarez or whoever that central defensive midfielder is, is kind of the, the fulcrum of the midfield. And marking him out of the game could be a, a really valuable thing for the United States. That's that's an interesting idea for sure, Daryl. But it also then, to, to criticize my own argument, I feel like... <laughs> You could argue that it neutralizes Pulisic a bit because you're giving him 
this defensive responsibility, right? So again, I think it goes back to the question of how cautious or how aggressive do we want to be against Mexico? Do we adapt to them or do we just say we're going to have the ball and we're going to make it work and we're not even going to worry too much about defensive coordination? Exactly. Or, yeah. it's, it's a question about whether Berhalter wants to, I mean, not abandon, abandon is too hard, but adjust on his own or or sort of try to force Mexico to adjust like you were yeah. saying. And I guess we'll find out all the answers to that on Sunday when we see what this defensive structure actually looks like. It also, for me, raises a question about Berhalter of, is he someone who just, no matter who the opposition is, he says, this is our system, we're going to practice it until it's perfect? Or is he someone who looks at the opposition and says, okay, they do that, so we should do this, and like makes little tweaks to, like in a Jose Mourinho style, like counter the opposition's strengths? I don't think I've seen enough of Berhalter against high-quality opposition to know whether he's that more the sort of latter type of coach or the former stick-to-the-system-no-matter-what kind of coach. Do you ever feel for which which end of the spectrum he's on? From what I've seen of Berhalter over the last few years, I think he's more likely to to keep the basic structure of his of his tactics and, and keep his general possession shape and, and defensive shape, but then make little tweaks as needed. Got it. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I think in the past, those tweaks have maybe come a little bit too late. Um, but I think Berhalter is probably more likely to keep what we've seen, keep the established shapes that he's used and then make little adjustments in there, whether that's, you know, moving a midfielder, moving one of the double pivot higher as needed to mark the central defensive midfielder or, you know, adjusting his wingers positioning kind of like we talked about. Yeah. I think we're more likely to see that than sort of an overhaul just for one game. Right. So it's tiny tweaks as opposed to switching to a four, five, one. It'd be more like, I right, Ariola be like five yards farther forward or backwards. That's my guess. It yeah. just kind of seems that like that sense. fits that in his personality. Right. Yeah. That rings true to me. That rings true. Um, okay. Um, how are you doing for time, Joe? Cause I've got, we've been through all oh, the, I'm good. I'm good. you good. Okay. We've been through the Twitter questions about the gold cup. We do have some of those questions about the future, which I was reticent to bring up because I really want to focus on the Gold Cup. But sometimes you've got to give the people what they want, right? That's um, right. So <laughs> Greg Leff asked, what's the next tactical evolution of Greggy Ball? Like we've seen, say, the thing of McKenney being less of a 10 and more of an 8. We've seen the thing of instead of the right back going to midfield, the right back overlaps. Like what, what else do you see changing maybe uh, in the future? This isn't like this isn't as fun of an answer as I'd like it to be, but I think it almost depends on the personnel. So this is kind of a non-answer actually. But okay. <laughs> over time, I think as the personnel change, and we talked about the U20s coming up eventually in the future and how people are excited to see that, Berhalter has his eye on those guys as well, right? Berhalter yeah, is looking at, at this next generation and their skill sets and how he can he can tweak like you know, like I just said, like how he can tweak his system to fit those guys as they come into the senior national team. So maybe we just look at a guy like Serginho Dest a little bit. Um, I think the right back role could change if we see Serginho Dest with the national team. Maybe maybe we see Brother go back to that more interior right back role where Serginho Dest can come inside and combine with midfield and, and make some runs late into the attack like we've seen from McKenney a little bit. Yeah. Um, maybe with Paxton, Paxton Palmacal, we see a little bit of, of that midfield role tweaked and, and maybe we even see Pulisic's role just a little bit. So I don't have any specific ideas for how Berhalter could change it just, you know, from game to game or even a year from now with the same roster. But I do believe that it's going to tweak. This is really interesting because when Berhalter took over, um, there was a strong argument that, okay, it's system first and then players to fit the system. And I think that's I think that's been mostly true. Um, but I also think you're right that as he's got familiar with certain players, he seems to be adapting the shape and the tactics to 
bring the best out of certain players, right? Like the the Pulisic Ariola, like switching back and forth thing, I think brings the best out of Pulisic because he can be in the middle and he can be out wide and it's it makes it harder for opposition to track him. Weston McKenney going from the 10 to more like the 8, I think was a good tweak to get the best out of Weston McKenney. So I really like this idea that there's the system first and as long as you broadly fit the system, right, if you're a guy who gives the ball away a lot but you're real fast, you could be, <laughs> you're not going to be on the in the Greg Berhalter, you probably shouldn't be an international footballer, um, right. but you don't fit the Berhalter style of play, right? Um, and maybe that's some of the problem he's been having with Tyler, Tyler Boyd, for example. Um, but like, I, I do think you're absolutely right that the tweaks in the system will be dictated by getting the best out of the talent that that is available available to Berhalter, yeah. Which is, which is a great thing, I think, because as we've seen Berhalter sort of grow almost more confident and more comfortable coaching in this system, I think that's put less pressure on him to sort of, you know, make these magic magic adjustments from game to game and sort of like, oh, this this is what the shape should look like. This is what we're going with now. Now that he has a baseline of a, a tactical baseline that he can go back to and and really just rely on from game to game, yeah. he can make those little tweaks. He can look at, you know, where is my player pool strongest? What positions do I have the most talent at? And how can I work those players into my into my scheme to really maximize the entire team. So I think if that's the one takeaway from this Gold Cup and even from the U20 World Cup, I think that's a good place to be. If we can sort of see Berhalter over the next two or three years implement these these young guys into his tactical baseline, I think that's that's a great thing. So I have a question. Um, you and I are talking very positively, positively about what we've seen, right, from Berhalter and from the U.S. throughout this tournament. And I think with lots and lots of justification – does this optimism fade away if the US loses the Gold Cup final even while playing kind of decently? Like how important is it that we win the Gold Cup final in terms of the good feeling that I feel like is just starting to build around the US men's national team, like McKenney and Pulisic dancing and all that? How <laughs> how big of a deal is it to win the Gold Cup? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in your question. I think if the US goes out there and they just get blown out and played off the field, that's a huge problem. But I'm not expecting to see that. I think I think I'm expecting to see a, a competitive game from the United States. So from my perspective, obviously inside the locker room, I'm sure it's different, and with a lot of fans, I'm sure it's different as well. But if I see the United States play a cohesive, you know, well-rounded game of soccer, I'm going to be pleased. I think that sets the United States well for the future. Neither Mexico or the U.S. is at full strength right now. Um, a win would be great, obviously. I think that's that's something we could all agree on. But yeah. I don't. I won't be disappointed, and I don't think we should just blow this whole thing up if the United States loses two one, on like on a like a late corner kick header yeah, yeah. goal from Raúl Jiménez. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of like Rafa Marquez did to us back in the day. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think the performance is the key thing, right? If we play badly, but if we play badly and lose or look overmatched, I personally would start having some concerns because it means. The first time we played a team of, say, roughly equal stature, this thing didn't work. And that would set some alarm bells off for me. I'd start to get at least a little bit worried. 100%. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Ooh, okay, so there's a lot riding on Sunday. I'm suddenly quite nervous. <laughs> um, Ryan Dewey asks, where does Paxton Pomacal fit into Berhalter's US men's national team? Ryan says, I was thinking the Areola role, which wouldn't have been my first assumption, but it's interesting. I was thinking the Areola role where he'd do a lot of swapping with Pulisic. What do you think? So there are a couple different different ways I could see Paul McCall in there. I think Ryan has an interesting idea. I, it wasn't one that jumped to my mind either, but starting him a little bit wider and then moving him inside as opposed to Pulisic, who you start inside and move outside, yeah. that could be a good spot for him because I think Paul McCall does fit better as a central player. Um, mm. So that's definitely that's definitely one option. 
the other option I can think of is you just you keep Pulisic out wide and you kind of make it a little bit more static. And Pulisic is just the winger and Pamacau is the central midfielder. And you, you don't let them interchange quite as much. Yeah. Um, there's definite downsides to that because you did mention earlier that you liked how Pulisic was kind of starting in that left-sided number 10 role yeah. and could sort of make those outside runs. And I, I totally agree with you. I think that's been something that's really enjoyable to watch from from Pulisic so far in this tournament. So the last thing I can think of, and, and don't worry, guys, I don't actually have an answer to this question, so I'm just kind <laughs> of spewing out hypotheticals here. But if Pamakel started as part of that double pivot um, – I think he has the defensive ability. He can win the ball in midfield, and he has such a high work rate that I I could see him in midfield as part of even part of a two man midfield, which he hasn't done a whole lot before. But I can see it. So maybe we see him a little bit deeper, and we see him pulling some of the attacking strings from deep. So he would essentially in in the current system he would be the McKenney replacement slash backup, right? Which yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't I think is see. a bad thing because think how many times throughout the last year or two I'm thinking I've been excited to watch the US men's national team, and then McKenney's injured. And I've been excited to watch Tyler Adams and then Adams is injured. I think it's important to have, because Pomacal's not going to just go straight into the starting 11 and be a permanent fixture, right? He's going to be someone exactly. who's maybe, in, assuming he gets selected, in the 23 and then has to like work his way into the squad. So if he can be someone's backup, even maybe Pulisic's backup in that left of center role, I'm not sure that's as good a fit as what you mentioned about the number eight type role, but it's still a thing I could see him doing. And personally, I'd be more excited to see Pomacal in one of those two roles than I would uh, the current version of Georgi Mihailovic or Christian Roldan. 100%. I think the fact that Pomacal is versatile and can play in a lot of different spots, like you mentioned, the United States has struggled with injuries over the last, I mean, year or two especially. So getting to have a guy like Pomacal who can fill in at a lot of different places and be genuinely impactful in a lot of those spots is a good thing. What about Dwayne Holmes? Do you see him in a McKenney-type role or somewhere else? I think I see him in a McKenney-type role just from the little bit that we got to see of him in those pre-Gold Cup friendlies. Um, he's another guy, I think, who is versatile and has the ability to play maybe in a more wide role as well. Yeah. So I think... He has I mean, done that just, for Derby, I'm certain. Exactly, yeah. I think he has played in some some wider attacking roles there as well and even maybe a little bit of fullback. Um I think just the idea that we have an experienced professional like Dwayne Holmes who has some skill and then a guy like Paxton Pomacal coming through as well who's younger and, and brings this level of excitement with him as well. That's a, that's another positive. We have been very positive in this show, Daryl. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I really enjoy that idea for the future. Maybe these guys aren't going to start, but having meaningful contributors who can come in and either you know fill in for injuries or come off the bench is is really big. And maybe we'll we'll get to a stage one day where – there's no chance of anyone doing eye rolls when they see the starting eleven because there's just so many players that we're excited about. I mean, that's, that's the that's the France that's the France thing right there. If you just getting one step closer to France is all I care about. There we go. Oh, to, to what to being the French national team. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just like they have so much depth; it's absurd. Yeah, or even the U.S. women's national team, right? That's a good. Uh, I mean, obviously, to be the best team in the world would be real good. But <laughs> just the fact that there, there seem to be the whole, the whole like who should start in central midfield of the of like Lavelle, Mewis, Haran, and Ertz. There's this whole thing of like that is we can all argue about it, but it's an absolutely glorious problem to have where you have too exactly. many good players, right? It's almost where like it Kristen doesn't matter. Press can't start when everyone's fit. That's crazy. <laughs> so maybe we'll get there we don't have to be the best team in the world to do that but it'd be great to have a US men's national team that's so bursting with talent that everybody's exciting about that someone who we're excited about is always going to be left out but it means the team is full of players that we love absolutely that's the day to look forward to oh I love the future 
much more, <laughs> much more than the present. All right, final, <laughs> final question. Final question from Dimitri Dube. Um, he said, I saw Daryl mention that he doesn't see Tyler Adams in the midfield immediately because he doesn't control the pace of play like Michael Bradley. So this was me saying, um, if we did switch like Bradley for Adams, that would be a lineup that everyone's excited about, right? Because it's a midfield of Adams, Pulisic, McKenney. But we would mm-hmm. lose the Michael Bradley controlling the tempo of the game thing that he does. And I think maybe Adams does that one day, but I don't think he does it right now. Um, so Dimitri's question was, can't West, Weston McKenney control the pace? So I'm guessing that's McKenney in the Bradley number six role. And Tyler Adams cause havoc, I guess, in the McKenney spot. So what do you think of that idea of almost like the evolution of when Michael Bradley does eventually essentially age out of the US men's national team or is overtaken quality-wise by some of these players coming through? What sort of combination do you see between McKenney and Adams if someone has to play that Bradley trap number six, big diagonal balls control the pace kind of role? This whole idea of the McKenny adams double pivot kind of takes me back to the before Berhalter was hired and we were all trying to figure out how we could fit those two guys in the same midfield together. Yeah. And I kind of thought it could work then, and I still a little bit think it could work now. Uh, obviously, the big caveat is is whether or not McKenny can control uh, the midfield yeah. against a quality opposition. Um, and frankly, I'm not sure until we see that we'll actually have an answer. Maybe maybe if he gets some chances to do it for David Wagner at, at Schalke, yeah. we can have a better idea this season. But until we see McKinney fully get the chance to do that, we won't know for certain. But, I mean, there are a lot of things about it that I think could could be really effective. Uh, both guys have, have high work rates, lots of energy, and are kind of natural tempo setters in terms of just their ability to get on the ball and play quickly. Yeah, um, that's the thing. They're tempo setters, but the tempo is high right the tempo and was it, high so. and it means maybe losing the ball that's what that's what that's what worries me a little bit about it not oh, not even worries me but means that Berhalter wouldn't go for it just yet is that Weston McKenney loves the killer pass right he doesn't love the short pass short pass short pass control the tempo in a way that say an experienced and brilliant midfielder like Sergio Busquets likes to do uh McKenney is more about the killer pass I think Tyler Adams the same so we would we would lose the ball a lot more than Berhalter would like I think and that's the problem is is because both of those guys their their playing personalities are sort of look for the home run both in the tackle and yeah. and with that pass that's the thing so i think it's kind of dependent on whether or not you can get it doesn't have to be McKinney. it could be adams as well a little bit settled in possession and and willing to be a little bit more reserved and allow the other yeah. one to make that late run into the attack if you can get them even to do that role at different times it could be adams in one one moment and McKinney in the next Ooh. if you can get that chemistry down so that it's almost like this this constantly moving and rotating double pivot but one of them is always back and and calm and in control it could work great and and maybe it never will because we can never get their personalities to sort of mesh in that way but i kind of selfishly would like to see it even just once it could be against you know a smaller Concacaf team just to see if it's even remotely possible yeah so maybe the future because i think it's actually just about their age right they've just got that sort of youthful energy and enthusiasm i mean i remember being 20 i was in a rush to do everything you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and i think it is just like the more experience they get i think your game if you're a really good player like these two really are and i see these guys improve right i see both of these guys work on things and look better year on year um i i do see it as a thing that they do in like two three four years which may coincide nicely with bradley aging out so it, i think you're right it could be a thing that we can try in games where we're really confident we'll have most of the ball and it will work out anyway um in the long run Maybe it's a thing that works like in a World Cup against really high quality opposition when these guys are older and more experienced and maybe understand a bit more the value of slowing things down. I think I think the timeline could be 
kind of perfect, like you're mentioning, as Bradley, as Bradley gets phased out a little bit, we'll get to explore with different different midfield setups and, and see how Berhalter likes to deal with higher quality opposition. All right. All right, Joe, I've taken up a lot of your time and grilled you with endless questions. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about? Let's be completist. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to in terms of the men's national team or the Gold Cup final or Mexico or any of that stuff? I mean, not really. Maybe one thing is just to give Aaron Long a shout out. We can, we yeah. did mention him briefly in terms of his ability to cover for Tim Ream, but it's been really fun for me to watch him and see how he sort of developed into the central center back role and, and really taken a lot of the defensive responsibility. So uh, shout out to Aaron Long. I'm I don't know if he's listening to this, but he's been he's been phenomenal yeah, uh, at this he's, tournament. So he's also a great story, right? Because he's not one of these guys that was development academy hotly tipped U.S. youth national team. He's a guy that kind of what got released and then I think he was picked up by Red Bulls too and played a lot of time in the USL and cause he's not as young as people think right he's like mid-20s um, at least and he's got that sort of late career blooming that I think I would credit the USL with giving him a place to play essentially 100% I guess that's a roundabout shout out for USL yeah um, which I will always plug yeah so that's that's great I think Aaron Long is a great story you're totally right speaking of plugs all right we have mentioned your work for the athletic I would encourage people to subscribe to the athletic whether you use the TSS discount code or not uh, to read the work of people like Joseph Lowry um, but also you do the the Phoenix Rising tactics uh, website right would, would you mind just uh, briefly explaining that to people just in case they don't know about it yeah, so I I live in Phoenix, Arizona, so I've been covering uh, Phoenix Rising this season. I started a website called risingtactics.com where I, I kind of break down their games in, in my traditional nerdy format. Um, <laughs> just to, to try to educate try to educate and give some insight to the, the market here as it continues to grow. Um, and if you're looking for a USL team to follow, uh, you're bored on a, on a Saturday night maybe. Phoenix Rising is playing some of the best soccer in North America right now. So is that right? What, I, what I'm are excited. they doing? I'm excited. What does it look like? They, so their coach, Rick Schantz, is kind of playing a very attacking, almost LAFC-like 4-3-3. Um, and they have they have Junior Flemings and Kevon Lambert from the Jamaican national team. Yeah, yeah. Um, John played, Baccaro. right? Flemings played against the U.S. Yeah, he did. Uh, John Baccaro in central midfield alone from Toronto FC. Um, There's oh, just a John, lot of talent. Is John Baccaro the son of the famous Baccaro? He, he is. He is. He did yeah. really well in college, right? Yeah, he's he's fantastic on the ball. He'll be yeah. back in MLS next season. I'd be shocked if he wasn't. Um, so yeah, Phoenix is is playing some great soccer. They have some really nice talent. Uh, the atmosphere at the stadium is is really great. So it's it's fun to watch a team and a market grow here in Phoenix. So yeah, definitely plug for at Rising Tactics on Twitter and then RisingTactics.com. And now I'm kind of fascinated. Who is the coach again, and what what's his backstory? Rick Schantz is the coach, and I, I honestly don't know enough about his his early backstory. He came up. I believe he played college soccer here in the United States, and uh, I think he spent some time down in Tucson, which is which is also where Aaron Long came up through in PDL a few mm. years ago. Um, he's the assistant coach for a few years um, with various coaches here in Phoenix, um, and he's taken on the role full time. And despite some early season struggles, he's done a really really good job with this team. Oh, brilliant! All right, then, Joe, I will close by saying thank you very sincerely for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely, Daryl. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, of course, thank you for listening. That's the otherwise it's just me and Joe talking over the phone, right? And no one no one's listening. People listening is the main thing. So thank you for doing that. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with a friend ahead of the Gold Cup final so they can get really uh, clued in to what is happening. And we will talk to you again very soon. 